0: This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada, on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. My guest today is a true Canadian pioneer, the Honorable Dr. Mayan Francis, the first Black Nova Scotian and only second woman to be appointed Lieutenant Governor in Nova Scotia's 400-year history. Dr. Francis was born and raised in Whitney Pier in Sydney, Nova Scotia, of Antiguan and Cuban descent. She graduated from St. Mary's University and began her career with the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission in 1972. Dr. Francis has received so many prestigious awards that it would truly take me uh, most of this episode to go through them, but I'll note a few here. She has an honorary degrees from Mount St. Vincent University, St. Mary's University, York University in Ontario, and Dalhousie University. She received medals for Queen Elizabeth's Gold, Silver, and Platinum Jubilee, and the BBPA Harry Jerome Award for Professional Excellence. Dr. Francis' memoir titled, My Anne Francis, An Honorable Life, was published in 2019 by Nimbus Publishing, just happened to be the publishing house that published my book, Black and White. Again, I've I've only touched the tip of the iceberg of the amazing record of accomplishment. Uh, and so please, let's welcome the Honorable Dr. Mayanne Francis. Thank
1: you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: Thank you so much for... For making the time, I know you're very busy. And by the way, happy Black History Month! We are in February. Yes, we
1: are. Happy Black History Month to you as well.
0: Yes, and I, I'm sure you know I've been uh, somewhat busy here in Ontario spreading the word about the importance of Black History. I'm sure it's been a busy month for you so far. What have you been up to so
1: far? I have been, um, I wouldn't say as busy as I, I normally am when it comes to Black History Month, and I, I'll tell you the reason why. Um, because I have to make major decisions about um, my history. And it was interesting because my thinking about my history and my success was very, very interesting. I've been thinking about it for several months and it hit this month um, even more. So yes, I have done a, a, a few things here, but my thinking was always about I have to do this because I want people 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now to be able to look at what did she do why she was successful, especially during a time when racism and discrimination is alive and well, and it will still be alive and well. So the, the reason why I feel it's important to make sure there's a legacy about me, it's important because I want it to inspire people, especially black people, but people of all colors, all background, to look and hear and read about what I did and how I became successful and how I manage it throughout this whole time. And why I said it was interesting how I've been thinking about it for several months because I, since 2020, I wanted it to be done. And I've been so busy, I have not been able to reflect on it and do it because it's it's a lot of work. But it was interesting when i I saw the, the, um, the theme for this month here in Nova Scotia was all about. Our history and our generations, and I said this is why I need to do it. So this has been a very interesting, exciting month, and I'm going to be making. I've made some decisions already, which are very, very important, which I will not talk about right now. But my goal is to try to have the legacy all written up and and given out to places, hopefully by the end of the year.
0: Well, that's a. Uh, I know it's a tremendous amount of work because you've had such a career, and we're going to touch on that today. Interesting enough, I've had many conversations, especially over the last few weeks for some reason, specifically about black history. And one of the things, as you know, Dr. Francis, is that here in Ontario, for example, uh, black history, which is 400 years of Canadian history, history on this territory, is still mandated as part of the education curriculum in Ontario. Can you believe that? And, you know, I remember saying to people, you know, I've had several conversations with with, uh, Dr. Francis Offline Senator Donna Oliver, which we'll touch on a little bit. I said, "How do I not know these people from history books? Right from mm-hmm. recent history right. books." So, mm-hmm. so I think the work you're doing is really important, and and we'll touch, we'll get into that a little bit more during our conversation today. Uh, maybe we can just take a minute, and you can tell me. Obviously, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, passed away uh, last year, and obviously you were her representative in Canada. Maybe just a few words of your, your thoughts of maybe a personal recollection and also what you believe her everlasting legacy will be for the world and for Canada, particularly as a as part of the Commonwealth.
1: Well, Queen Elizabeth will always be in my heart. Always. And when I was asked to be the lieutenant governor, I was very nervous about the question because I said, I'm a black person. Who's going to accept that in Nova Scotia if I say yes? But in any event, in 48 hours, I gave my answer as yes. And it's interesting, and I'm so happy that I did because let me just go backwards a little bit because um, when we talk about history, my parents were strong supporters of royalty. And before Her Majesty became Queen, my parents were invited to meet her and when she was visiting Cape Breton, and they were there uh, to to be at the hotel where she was a guest. And also, what I remember is I was about, I don't know, five or six at the time, maybe seven years old. But in any event, when both her and her husband were driving up the street towards where they were going, uh, he was on the side of where I was standing and he waved and then all of a sudden she leaned over from the other side and she waved and I said she waved at me. (laughs) But but anyhow, plus my middle name is Elizabeth and my sister's middle name is Victoria. So that demonstrated my parents' um, dedication to royalty. I felt that I had a very good relationship with Her Majesty. When I met her for the first time in 2007, because all Lieutenant Governors, and I'm pretty certain Governor Generals as well, must meet her. And so just meeting her in England, uh, I brought my sister with me. And just to have a conversation with her, and, and it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm standing here. I can't <laughs> exactly. believe I'm talking to it her. must be
0: surreal in many and minutes, it was right?
1: It was so respectful. And then her last trip to Nova Scotia, her last time with in 2010, and here I was, still Lieutenant Governor, and once again had my relationship with her. Intelligent woman, caring person, so smart, and I felt great, and I kept thanking God for this opportunity to be with her again. And it gave you learning, because this was somebody she had the greatest respect Um, For all sorts of people, regardless of color, she spent time with the indigenous groups of people. She was at the military. She was everywhere. Youth, schools, people just love her. And she is somebody who is a very dignified person. She's an objective person, but she's a kind, wonderful, intelligent person. Woman.
0: Obviously, you know, she she spanned, uh, her reign was so long and she was part of history, so many moments in history. But what do you think her her legacy going forward, what do you think that she'll be remembered for from your perspective?
1: From my perspective, she'll be remembered for, first of all, her intelligence, her dignity, her objectivity. Her caring, her love for people, and she was somebody who just demonstrated she cared for everyone, and that's what I really liked about her. And you think of the example when her um, daughter-in-law was killed in the car accident. The Queen bowed when the f- when the casket was passing her by, and you know that wasn't something that you anybody would expect, but she did, and that's why I love her because I said that just goes to show she'll show you when. I was wrong. And, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. what she did. And she just just keeps her dignity. Because remember, she wasn't saying much or wasn't around when she just stayed in the back. But she was with the grandchildren at the time. But then she came because when she heard all the public complaints and everything else about it, she stepped forward. And it was with such dignity that she did it and shown her love for for the loss of of the young lady.
0: Well, I think I I remember that moment. And Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was a big moment. Absolutely. So thanks for sharing with that. You've written and spoken a lot about Whitney P here, the small town where you grew up in Nova Scotia, and you talk about how multicultural it was, the community made up of people from all over the world and cultural backgrounds. And really, you, you talk about in your memoir that you didn't really feel that different being Black in that community, which I found kind of surprising maybe you can share a little bit more with us about that community where you grew up and why it was so special.
1: Right. Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that and asked it. And I I keep saying, I'm not saying that we were perfect. Okay. I'm not saying that (laughs) at all. I'm not saying that there weren't some little things somebody might've said, called me a name or whatever. Yeah, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that in that community where there are people from all over the world, from Ukraine, from England, from um, Ireland, from there was even maybe one or one person there from Russia. There are people from all. Over And the Caribbean and other parts that I'm I'm not even mentioning. I mean, not that I don't want to mention it, but there was just all of us all over the world. And in areas, we just cared about one another. It didn't matter if your skin was white or black or brown. We just cared about one another, either with food or with clothing or just with chatting, whatever it was. But everybody stressed education. Everyone stressed education. Yes, there were some challenges there, but I never, ever felt that I was not going to be accepted as a black person. And yes, um, whenever we went maybe over town, we always call that over town, we realized that, oh, we're poor and we're different. But when I left the pier to study to be an x-ray technologist in Halifax, and let me tell you, just getting up there, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm treated differently.
0: So this is really interesting because you and I have a parallel experience, right? When I was a little kid growing up, you know, in the suburbs of Montreal, like I was just little Stephen having fun and having friends, but it was other people that started reminding, you know, as the your world became more than the corner of the street where you're from, That's right? right? Yeah. You started feeling that, wow, there is something and I got older and realized it. But one of the things you talk for those, you know, obviously uh, not as familiar with, with Nova Scotia, when uh, Dr. Francis says, you know, going into town, she means Halifax and you actually <laughs> moved there in the 1960s to go to school and and you detail in your memoir about, you know, trying to rent an apartment. And uh, so this is the 60s. And another interesting parallel for us, an experience I had in Montreal in 1991 and uh, moving and trying to rent an apartment with my then girlfriend who happened to be who was white. And, you know, it was the old days. You circled the ads in the paper and then you called and you made an appointment. And we made like 12, 14 apartments. And by the time we got there, they were all rented. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Right. When they saw. So please share your experience, which it happened been in the 60s. That's almost 30 years before, but it's funny how things didn't change. But what was your experience like, and how did that make you feel? All of a sudden, your differentness, your blackness, really started to cause some challenges.
1: Mm-hmm. But you know what? Um, why I'm, I'm, I'm I always talk about being raised in Whitney Pier because it gave me a, a, a foundation to know that I was important. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so Even though I may fa- I face racism and still do in different parts, the foundation kept me strong. I still. Love myself, right? Based on what I, how I was raised and some of the teachings that I learned um, in Whitney Pier, I never felt discouraged about going far and being successful. It didn't bother me. But yeah, I did. I become annoyed absolutely, and I said, I'm gonna fight this, right? But here it is. You see an ad in a newspaper. You say, Oh, I'm gonna get that apartment, and you go there. It's gone. Well, what do you mean it's gone? I just called you. Oh no, no, somebody, somebody (laughs) did, and you know that type of line. And when I started working at the Rights Commission, mm-hmm. then we started plans to really get and sue these places who were lying like that. And um, I, when I worked first at the Human Rights Commission as a human rights officer under George McCurdy, the late George McCurdy, who was an absolute leader in terms of having a very strong human rights commission and and that's what he did he's a perfect example and I wish someday that people start talking about him about his history uh, because he's actually out of Ontario but he um, was focused in he was in um, Nova Scotia head of the human rights commission if it wasn't for him that also gave me another aspect of success in looking at human rights and the analysis because I call him my mentorship as he was a part of my mentorship as well in terms of working on human rights
0: matters you know you said it takes work to not have your spirit broken. Courage, love of self, confidence in my abilities. I know obviously from having read your memoir that part of that is is rooted in family, part of that is rooted in your uh spiritual beliefs. For for those who have also faced adversity and anti-black racism and and you know, this is we're talking about the 1960s, a very different time than today, but not you know, some things are the same. Is that just something that was inside you or or that you it was modeled to you. How how did you have that strength within you?
1: I would say the strength within me was there for my faith in God. My father was the clergy of the African Orthodox Church. And my mom, um, obviously, was a very active member in the church as well. And we were always, uh, we would have church in the morning, Sunday school, church at night. So Sundays was just, that was it. All Sundays. And, and for me, that was just life. That was the meaning of life. And I always prayed. I always, and I still do pray. And when anything negative that happened to me, I just automatically pray. And so that came as a result of my um, growing up with with a, with a father who was a clergy. I never looked back. And I um, I'm not going to say that I was perfect. I did some (laughs) things that should not have been done. But in terms of of self, it was was my faith in God. That's what kept me going. And that's what kept me to fight any type of discrimination. Because I mean, even today, the challenges um, are still there, but they might even be greater. And I tell people, you have to have your faith in yourself too.
0: We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, I'd like you to share with us some of the important people who positively impacted your life along your journey. And we're also going to touch on how you paid that forward as a mentor and role model to others. So we'll be right back with Black and White. Hey, everyone. If you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Welcome back to Black and White with my final guest of season two, the Honourable Dr. Mayenne Francis, the 31st Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. I always I always have to catch myself, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, but I've heard you say Lieutenant, so that's going to be the way I say it for the rest of my life. Dr. Francis, just before we went to the break, we were talking about role models and mentors inspiring youth. And I know you had incredible people that supported you along the way. In my book, I talk about headwinds that I faced throughout my career. You know, some people say they had to work twice as hard. And like I say, I'm not sure if that's, but I definitely had some headwinds, which added to the challenges of trying to succeed. And I know that you had them and you handled them with grace. You share stories about The good people who supported you, encouraged you in your personal and professional career, including non-black people. So maybe you could share a couple stories with us, or or the story of someone that really had an impact on you and, and helped push you along or, or encourage you at the right time in your, in your life.
1: Mm. You know, if we had about another 20 hours, (laughs) there's so many things that I I would want to talk about. So I'm quickly going to start thinking about, um, some folks and, um, I'm going to talk to you about when I received my, my bachelor's degree. My bachelor's degree was paid for by a white person okay and that person was from Nova Scotia in Cape Breton and i'm going to tell you why why i want to share that story with you when i decided to um when I finished off being an x-ray technologist after I um, was working at that, and I loved it. And then I said, I really want to go to university. And when I mentioned to my family, my mom and dad, I said, I don't know about the money, I'm going to get a loan. And daddy said, yes, get a loan, and it will be great for you to go to university, etc. So just by chance, when he was talking to a very wealthy person in Cape Breton, who was a very dignified man, and he just said, to my father, do you know anybody who I can um, help go to university? And my father just said, pardon? Uh, I was just sort of blue. But it wasn't only me. This person was also providing um, funding for other people, um, whether they were indigenous, whether they were brown, whether they were white, whatever. The bottom line is this person, his, his, his only thing he said is that nobody was mentioned my name. And I still, to this day, have never talked about him. Paid everything. Every single thing. And so that person I give my credit to for my first degree.
0: What a great story. Isn't
1: that something? Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: White people in Canada are asking how they can be allies, how they can bring about change and take some action. But it just goes to show you who would have, you know, this gentleman who couldn't have predicted who you would become, Mm -hmm. but provided you the entry into higher education with which created a foundation for your future success, all the way up to a regal position, which is, you know, in Canada, that very few people attain. What an amazing story.
1: Yep, it's, and I did find his son... Uh, maybe about 10 years ago. And um, the son said, remember, you're not supposed to tell (laughs) my dad. I said, no, no, I'm not going to. But he said, but I followed you. And he said, you became Lieutenant Governor. And you know what I'm saying? So that to me is like a lot of credit to the father and to the man who was very nice. I only met him maybe a couple of times, but Mm -hmm. he was very close to many people in the community. And And I always say, again, that's God's blessing. I also looked at like people, our history a long time ago. I'm looking at Nelson Mandela. Okay, Um, you know, Martin Luther King. Those are the people that I looked and read about what they're doing. And then I also had people in Whitney Pier who've been very successful. Um, We're talking about Clotilde Yakamachuk. We're talking about Campy Crawford. We're talking about Tom Miller. These were all Black people who've been so successful. And so just watching and observing. And then a very close friend of mine, late Beverly Maskell. As I say her name, I know people in Ontario will know about her. And she was also a very close friend and a mentor okay? Very close and a mentor. And she's the one when we were chatting one time and she was saying how she um, was influenced by reading about and knowing about Viola Desmond. And I looked at her and I said, who's Viola Desmond? And she looked at <laughs> me and said, excuse me? <laughs> you know? And then she educated me. So can you imagine that's the negativity of history not being taught?
0: Exactly. Well, this is part of what we were talking earlier and I've been mm-hmm. having this conversation. Let's talk about Viola Desmond because there's a, again, a full circle story that has you in it, (laughs) right? So I'm just going to orient our audience for those who don't know, Viola Desmond was is considered one of the the biggest activists really in uh, in the black community, all the way back to the 1940s. And she was an entrepreneur in the beauty business. And an incident happened where she went to a movie theater and she was uh, told that she couldn't sit in an area that was designated for white people. This is Canada. In my book, I talk about this mythology of race that many Canadians live in, which is, you know, well, we didn't have slavery or segregation. It happened all here in Canada. And anyway, she was arrested for this move and I believe uh, fined. And I'll let you tell a little bit of that story. And then all these years later, like, like, more than 50 years, uh, more than that, 70 years later, you, as Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia, were able to provide her a free pardon, right? Like, what a full song. So maybe tell us a little bit about that story from your perspective, who Viola Desmond was just briefly, and and who sh- what she means to the Black community, and what she should mean to Canadians, and why you took this action seven decades later to rectify Iran
1: mm-hmm. she has a big history but wasn't told now it is but she was on her way in 1946 to Cape Breton to expand her beauty business okay and even before she was she became uh, somebody in the beauty business she was also a school teacher and even during the days of discrimination she had to study to be a teacher by reading and by um, doing it online. Not online, I call it online now, but there was no online then. But, you know, she had to be doing reading and so. But then she wrote, wrote a, a provincial test and she passed and she was teaching at, in Preston area and so forth. But anyway, she became influenced, she was influenced by by the successful black businesswoman in the United States. And in any event, she decided, I want to do something like that. And that's what she did. So her, her career in Halifax, in terms of the beauty business, was excellent. She had a school. She had various areas within the beauty business. She was um she made makeup and everything. So it wasn't just about her doing people's hair and everything. So she was smart. So on her way to um, Cape Breton, um, her car broke down in New Glasgow, and when she took it to um, to get it fixed, they said, "Oh, we're going to have to keep it for a couple of hours and so forth." She decided to go to a movie theater. She goes into movie theater because she had poor eyesight. She decided to sit sit close. to to the screen and they told her, you you, you can't stay here because you have to sit upstairs. And she said, no, I want to sit down here. Well, you have to pay extra. Well, here's my money. And the extra was one penny. They wouldn't accept it. So anyway, they called, had her arrested. She was dragged out, thrown into jail, and she was also injured. So the bottom line is she was convicted for defrauding the government of one penny which is not which was wrong, because they wouldn't accept her money. And I'm just giving her, people can do more research on this, but I'm sure, just giving sure. you a little summary of yes. that. So in any event, she went back to Halifax. She did not continue on to Cape Breton. And maybe like within about... A year or so, she decided to stop, and she moved off to the United States, she took a course in Montreal, and then moved off to the United States to start something different. Very intelligent woman. And it, her sister, Wanda, fought for her um, after her death. Then, unfortunately, she died young, as far as I'm concerned, her early 50s. And I would say that that had a lot of, uh, what she went through had an impact, I think, on not only her mental health, but physical health. Because when I said to her sister, Wanda, why did she not expand, keep expanding her business? and her sister said, she was tired mm-hmm. so you think about that there's a lot of research about the effect of discrimination and racism on people and it talks about the psychological effect I'm not saying that's what happened to Viola but it's a possibility we don't know that because when she died at the age of a 50 or 51 with um, some internal problems that she had and her body was found in the apartment in in New York so what and but her sister Wanda even at this stage in life and Wanda unfortunately died last year She insisted on the government to free her sister because she was um, convicted for something she did not do. And so, in any event, when the new government came in, when I was Lieutenant Governor in 2010, uh, NDP government, they did accept and decide, yes, this is what we need to do. And so, and a high recommendation to me as Lieutenant Governor, because the only person that can give free pardon is royalty or royalties representative. And at that time, I was the rep. So the royal prerogative of mercy was granted to her on April 15, 2010. And as a result of that freedom during the speech I gave, I knew that this was going to be her name, her history, her people debating and understanding who she was. It's going to be going for ever. Mm -hmm. And here we are, she's on our $10 bill.
0: Exactly.
1: There's many, there's some streets named after her, there's some schools named after her, there's many monuments, there's scholarships and so forth. And you know what, that's gonna go on and on and on because of knowing who this person was and also the effect that racism had on her and on our communities, our country, in our world. And that's important. It's yeah. such a
0: great story. Again, that has, uh, it took a lot of effort to have it put into the public domain, if you will, right, mm-hmm. for broadly for Canadians. And there's nothing, you know, every time someone goes to pay with a $10 bill, they see her, right, and tell exactly. her story. And, but, you know, she is just the tip of the spear, if you will, because there's so many other people that are, have not been celebrated who should. And just to, as a final point, it, it must be so Incredibly um, humbling and satisfying that you, as a black woman, a Canadian black woman, you were the one that were, was able to make this happen because of your achievement in in ascending and reaching this post. That must have hit you.
1: Well, it did, and I and I again. For me and my faith, I said there was a there's a message here, God's message that I would happen to be the Lieutenant Governor at the time to be granting freedom to for a black woman who was innocently put in jail because she was black. And so, you know, that's Gives a big story and a big history of things, and so when you look at it and say she happened to be the left-handed governor at the time, and don't forget Viola was on her way to keep Britain, and I'm sure she would have ended up in the pier. Um,
0: so, you know, <laughs> there you go. There you, know, you
1: go. And so you know when you when I look at it like that and and say okay, there's a strong message in here, and I will always be connected to Viola now until forever, even when I leave this earth, um, the connection. Well, who freed her? Well, it was man, France you know, that type of thing, that will that will be there. And that's going to stay forever as well when I get it done.
0: I want to pick up on something you just mentioned about Viola Desmond, which was, she's an entrepreneur. And as you know, Dr. Francis, you know, there are still some, in, you know, uh, Canadians, and I would say even some government leaders that continue to push back on the existence of systemic racism and inequality in this country, you know, and they point to accomplished black people like yourself, Senator Don Oliver, Wes Hall of Kingston, Advisor, who's also uh, on the Dragon's Den, as examples of uh, how hard work pays off for black people, for those that choose to pull themselves up from their bootstrap. That saying is is a little bit offensive in many different ways, but I'm not going to delve too much into that. But as we know, these often cited examples of black success in Canada are more, unfortunately, exceptions rather than a general pattern. Because we know that there's, for those uh, who don't know these figures, but Black people in Canada make up about 3.5% of the Canadian population, but less than 1% of corporate executives in leadership roles, and even less on boards. And we've talked, that's been in the media a lot in the last couple years. So all this to ask you... What do we do? What do we say? How do we engage those who are still pushing back on believing what the, de- the data actually confirms is real about systemic inequality and how we? What more needs to be done in your mind and from your perspective on how we need to address this?
1: Well, uh, racism and discrimination is still alive and well, unfortunately. And I what's so important, and I keep emphasizing. Is that everybody must understand the impact that slavery has had on? the world and the negative impact in terms of if you're going to be looking at um, policies in your organization or even your own attitude, you need to have to understand systemic discrimination. You have to look at and understand microaggression. You have to understand unconscious bias. You have to understand covert, overt, racism. You have to understand all of that because if you understand that including white privilege, That is all as a result of the history of slavery. And don't forget, some Canadians were saying, we didn't have slavery in our countries. (laughs) You know I just said, well, that's not true. We had it. And, you know, if people were to really go back and start looking at the history of so many black people, you might be very surprised at what, if you weren't so discrimination or even just looking at what they have, what they, what they suggest or what they're doing, you may have a better world. Um, you know those those things are there, but people just refuse because they still have in their heads the um, negative aspects of black people, and that's the piece that is alive and it is well. And I also think that it's so important that we, as as black people, and when I'm, uh, I encourage uh, many of our young people look at everything first of all, love yourself. Look at education, very important. Look at education in the health industry. Look at education in environmental issues. Look at education in doing plumbing. and Look at education in doing sports. There's everything, music. We can be everything. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sure. And I, and I, I encourage people to be that way and be excited. And I tell them, love animals too, you know, special animals, like I love my cats. I got two, they're my little my little pets. It's important and it's all, it's all about respect, and you would be surprised to see how it's all there. And when people say, yeah, but you were successful, and you know, I said, yes, I'm successful, and I want to make sure that there's followers, okay? I don't consider myself to be better than anybody else. I just consider myself to be able to do what God asked me to do, and I do believe this this was all God's call. And even now, as I as I want to make sure that I have my legacy left behind, I always say to God, I said, you know, that's a lot of work you're asking me to do now, even at this stage of my life. But I think it's important because I like my legacy to not only just be for, for black people, but for people who are not black, whether they're brown, whether they're white, whether they're immigrant, whatever, to just feel, let me understand this, let me study this, let me feel that I have positive actions going down the road? Because I, as I said, I think about Martin Luther King. I think of Nelson Mandela. I think of all of those positive people.
0: Well, I I think it's a great way to to position it to others, right? And from an inspirational standpoint. Speaking of calls, you've had lots of accomplishments throughout your career in life, but obviously uh, becoming Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia, the 31st Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia is a major milestone. And I'm always interested as to how these things come about, right? And I know we've talked a little bit about this offline, but tell me what it was like to get the call from the Prime Minister of Canada asking you if you would serve. And I know there's a whole protocol on how you have to meet in person and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about that story?
1: Well, it was interesting because when the phone call came, it came when I was... um CEO of the Human Rights Commission. And the person called my assistant and said they wanted to speak to me. And my assistant became very nervous because he knew it was was the prime minister's office. And he accidentally hung up the phone. (laughs) And he came flying into my office. And he said, I just hung up uh, the prime minister's office. I said, sure, you did. And I just ignored him because I thought he was telling the truth. (laughs) So anyway, I said, well, that was probably somebody just making a false phone call. No, 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 it was. Anyway, he ran back in, called. And then I heard it. And I said, oh, my gosh. There was the call from there. So in any event, the person questioned me a lot and I said, can you tell me why you're calling? I can't, um, the person said, but um, I will get back to you and I might have you come up and meet with the prime minister. And I remember saying to my two office staff at the time, I said, you know what? I don't know. Did I do something wrong? Uh, I said, <laughs> I'm, I always pay my taxes, so I don't understand why. Why would they want me? Couldn't figure it out. But to make a long story short, I did have to fly there. And when I was asked to go there, I made—I always sit on the aisle seat on a plane, but this time I decided to sit by the window because I knew there were going to be people on the plane I knew, and I didn't want them asking me, "Where are you going? Why are you coming to Ottawa?" Yeah, you know, because anyway. you have to keep
0: it under wraps exactly, until it's official, right? That's right? Exactly.
1: When I when I did get there and meet with with the prime minister, and when I I was frozen too, and then of course when I was asked. I just was blank. Cause I said, this can't be happening. But in any event, it was. But then when I reflect, and, and as I said earlier, in 48 hours, I gave my answer. But when I reflect on in the year 1999, and I remember when there was a, a party at a two friends place, and I talk about in my memoir, that they asked us to write down what we would do if we, when we get to, um, you know, a, a 2000, year 2000. I wrote down saying that, oh, when I become Lieutenant Governor, I don't don't ask me how i said that but anyway i was left out of governor so in any event the bottom line is is that when i did say yes i was prayed about it and that's what i think god told me say yes and when i did um decide to say yes then i started praying about i want to do the right thing because mm-hmm. of my respect and love for the queen. And also, I want to make sure that there's, there'll always be a number two, a number three, a number four, a number five, a number six, and much more.
0: And, and I like that you, you know, this is what the, the legacy and the passing forward to the next generation is, wanting to, to make sure that you dotted the I's and crossed the T's and performed and modeled success for others, right? Versus, Absolutely. right, so to to break down potential barriers that my erect based on if you had failed, right? With people uh-huh. waiting for you to to fall. So I commend you for that, and of course you did a great. Uh, you you represented very well, in, in all of the roles that you had. Thank you. I want to. We're getting to the end of our time, close uh, almost here. But I just want to bring it back to today. You know, as we said, it's Black History Month. It's 2023. It's almost three years since the global reckoning on race, since the murder of George Floyd. I did a lot of interviews this past week and people asking me, have we made progress? What more needs to be done? So I'm going to ask you the same question. Do you think we've made some progress in Canada in regards to anti-Black racism, systemic racism? And what do you think we need to do more of?
1: Well, I would say that we've made some movement Short and small. But one, one area that I've noticed a lot of is when I'm watching television and I'm noticing more black people in on particular areas and so forth. And I'm saying, hmm, this is all very interesting. Wouldn't have seen this before. But which I'm happy about because it shows that we're able to handle things as well by um, in particular roles that we might be asked to, to be in. In any event, there's still a lot more to do. I still feel that people do not understand the impact of slavery on systemic, dis- why there is um, systemic discrimination. People do not understand their policies and see that their policies have racist attitudes in there um, in terms of policies, et cetera. I'm not saying that they don't want to do it. As- well, some people don't. And some people just say, oh, no, we're doing it now. But they don't <laughs> fully understand and the analysis of it because I think unconscious bias is another role that plays a very active role in there. And I still get followed when I go into some stores. So you see what I'm sure. saying? Sure, yes, yes, ad- yes. That attitude is there. And then when I tell that to close friends who might be white and they said but I don't understand how they don't know who you are I said that's not the point <laughs> you know it's not it's not about knowing that I was the left-handed governor don't follow no. Me. it's not no, about no. that
0: you're a black body
1: exactly and that's what right. it is the assumption is well follow them because you don't know what they're going to be doing you know and it's very frustrating um so that's still there then you still have some challenges in terms of um, police officers and so forth but the bottom line I'm not saying that they're not trying to make change they are but they have to fully understand I think as as leaders, you have to understand that you know the impact of what slavery has meant. Even though it was a long time ago, it brought about changes. You have to understand the full meaning of white privilege. And that's not to say that you don't, you're do not you not supposed to like yourself. No, I'm not saying that whatsoever. And I remember when somebody read my book and um, they're white and they came and they said, well, you know what, I'm, I'm really ashamed of being white. I said, are you white? And so they looked at me and I said, I'm not telling you to be ashamed of who. Why. I'm asking you to understand what it means and then we had a long chat on that and so i said as long as you like yourself i'll like you too and so we just laughed and joked about it and i said one of the ways that you can make changes is- how do you teach your children? Because we need to have histories in school. We need to have more understanding of the history of, of black people, the history of brown people, the history of indigenous people, definitely indigenous. But I think so much we need to have our history there. And people did not know who Viola Desmond was. People did not know about other strong Canadian black people who've done exceptionally well way back when and are still doing exceptionally well. This is important.
0: Exactly. So a couple of things you were mentioning, you know, and, and I'm with you is because I, I speak about this as well, you know, about the reforms we need in the systems and institutions, right? Yeah. And I was asked the other day and I said, well, when we're talking about there's the awareness, which is definitely increased, there's people moving towards a greater level of understanding, both citizens and some leaders. But most of the systems and institutions were created by white men for white men. Right mm-hmm. And so the only way that you're going to, to change that is through reform and actually getting back and, and reanalyzing. Like for example, education, right? As I mentioned before, in Ontario, black history, 400 years of history is not even mandated. Mm. right? The Black Historic Society of Ontario hired a big ad agency here in Toronto and did a, a 60 second spot that shows a great eight textbook and it's mm-hmm. 255 pages. And they blacked out all the, the pages that don't have anything to do with or mentioning Black history at all. And that only left 15 pages <laughs> unaltered. Seriously. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it just goes to imagine. Yeah. So I'm with you. So I'm glad we're on the same page. And uh, hopefully through people reading your book and other books and and trying to do their own learning, we can take a, a few more steps toward that. And I think mm-hmm. Black history is important to, to at least focus people for 30 days on Black history, but hopefully it, it, you know, extends throughout the year.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. absolutely, yeah. And we have good history, you know, and I, I just think it's really good to know it and understand it because then that gives you a different feeling about people who are Black today.
0: Absolutely. Maybe, and, and I know you, you've written something and maybe instead of answering this straight off, maybe you could share a poem that I know that you wrote specifically for Black History Month with us. And I think this might kind of sum up kind of your your view of where we are and, and how people should maybe think about the future.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. I definitely will share it, but I did not write the poem for Black History Month. I wrote it when I was given a speech about two months ago. And when I was looking at something the other day and I looked and I said, oh, my gracious, this poem really fits for our history here for the theme for Black History Month. So I'm glad, glad to be sharing it with you. It just, again, I always say God has me do things and then he'll, when he has me look at it again, because the speech was over weeks ago, months ago, and I just happened to look and I said, this just fits in good for Black History Month, but it also fits in for my advice and my recommendations to African Nova Scotians. Do you want me to read it?
0: Yes, please.
1: I titled it, and by the way, I'm I'm not a poet, but all of a sudden sometimes I find myself writing poetry. The title, I gave the title is My Beliefs for African Nova Scotians. Hey, education is top of the line. Why not continuous learning? Oh yeah. Books, humans, stories, talks, movies, films, plays, songs. Love yourself and love your community, but don't forget to love all of God's creations. Cats, dogs, fish, humans. Strategic thinking. Communicate, communicate. What does that mean? Positive outcome? God, my advisor, internal and external human advisors, females, females and males. Help for climbing over the fence, climbing over the barriers, and climbing up the ladder. Compassion, honesty, and caring makes one feel good. Strong spirit cannot be broken. Truth sets one free. God's love, God's call. Forgiveness, yes. Anger, depression, Overcome, ride the course of faith for strength. Standing on top the mountain, remember humility is down below. Selfless, yes. Selfish, no. Leading the cause for goodness, why not? Inclusivity, determination, why not? Ancestors, thank you. Next generation, Black leaders, Black women, Black men, Black youth, God's call, God's purpose, faith in God. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. Dr. Francis, it's been an an honor. Thank you so much. Wish we could look forward to until we do this again.
1: Well, it's been quite an honor to be here with you, Stephen, and I hope that you'll travel to Cape Breton or Halifax so that I can see you and meet you.
0: I look forward to the time. So uh, Good. thanks again. Thank you. Thank you to the Honorable Dr. Mayan Francis, the 31st Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. I encourage all of you to pick up Dr. Francis Memoir, Mayan Francis, An Honourable Life, and her beautiful children's book, Mayan's Train Ride, and One Summer in Whitney Pier, both available at your favourite local bookstores, on Amazon and Indigo Chapters. Thanks everyone for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app and take the time to rate our show, please. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to my producer, sound designer and engineer, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change, is also available at your favorite bookstores across the US and Canada, and online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or visit my website at stephendorsey.com. Send me a note, I'm always interested to hear your perspective and feedback. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better so that eventually we can all live better together.